So welcome to the Duran and Associates podcast, Insurance Banter. In each one of our episodes, you'll experience insightful discussion about important topics that you can turn around and implement into your business to become a more effective insurance professional. And this morning, Chris and I are joined by Mark Robinson and Ryan Hong from Michaelman and Robinson LLP. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And if you would tell us just a little bit about your firm and, and what it is that, that y'all do within that firm. Sure. Um, and we are a full service national law firm. Um, uh, we practice in the uh, corporate um, employment, litigation, uh, IP and other business areas. Um, one of our niche practices is insurance and insurance regulatory work representing insurance agencies and brokerages and other insurance entities. Um, and uh, we handle all aspects of legal issues facing um, those types of insurance entities, um, including uh, merger and acquisition and buying and selling of agencies. We appreciate you being on with us today. Um, and we're going to talk about really kind of some transactions that happen within the insurance uh, industry that have just been happening by leaps and bounds these last few years and maybe slowing down just slightly, but not too much. And uh, that would be sales. Mergers and acquisitions are happening about everywhere. And uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about preparing a business for a sale, preparing an agency for a sale. I know Chris advises a lot of folks and, uh, Oftentimes, Chris, would you say they're maybe not as prepared as they could have been, right? They, um, most agencies go to market and they have done limited prep work. And now it, it really comes back to haunt them um, because the people buying agencies are professionals at buying agencies. They have the competitive advantage here in the deal making. So having someone like Ryan come on that helps with the, the prep and the legal work all the time specific to agencies is man what a it's really an important advisor to have when you make this decision so so ryan when they're getting ready to go what should they be doing before they call you that'll make their lives a lot easier oh uh, sure um yeah there's a lot of things that they need to take care of um before they uh you know get started with the sale process um, they need to have um a lot of their uh, corporate items in order, um, have making sure that they've got their bylaws and minutes. And then um, if there's any sort of uh, shareholder agreement or if there's an if they're an LLC and operating agreement and making sure that those documents are uh, buttoned up and that uh, everybody knows um, sort of the rights that are uh, set up for everybody. And also um, eventually the buyer is going to be asking for substantial financial and legal diligence. So uh, they should have those documents uh, set up and ready to go as well. Um, and then they should uh, make sure that uh, their producer agreements are also uh, lined up and that they've uh, covered their producer agreements and know what, what's in them and uh, ha have a good sense of um, what the uh, rights are for all the producers. Um, and then when it comes to uh, the broader picture of um, the financial uh, sense, they should understand um, the components of their business and uh, how a buyer would potentially view it, um, which may be in terms of their uh, overall um, uh, earnings and profits, uh, both from a perspective of uh, the, what the seller looks like, but also just how the buyer may take a, 
a view at, at it. For instance, um, when the buyer is going to look at the company, they're going to assume that um, certain seller costs that the seller may sort of think of the, as their own. For instance, if the seller is uh, providing a lot of services and they just consider those seller services as a part of the overall profit of the company, well, a buyer is not going to view it that way because they're going to need to hire somebody in the actual seller role. Uh, so that'd be an instance where a buyer is going to view things a little bit differently than a, than a seller. One question I've always wondered about, having sat in on a lot of you know annual meetings where we're taking minutes for those uh, corporate entities, that sometimes the minutes are you know, pretty light and, or I know a lot of folks that have businesses that maybe are not holding those annual meetings. If it's a, you know, corporation, the board meetings and things, how, is there a way for folks to either shore those up as they're, as, as they're starting to do those meetings, or if they've been missing some of them, um, what do you see folks do to maybe shore that little piece up? I don't sure. really hear that talked about. Sure. If they've, uh, you know, been running the business and concentrating more on the business itself versus, um, you know, corporate formalities, such as making sure that there's annual me- um, annual meetings or um, that they've kept board minutes on a regular basis, uh, they could do what's called a ratification. And that is reviewing past actions of the corporation and sort of uh, taking a look at major uh, steps that have been done and in sort of one fell swoop, um, pass either a consent or hold a meeting where they actually take a lot of past actions and ratify them, which effectively means at the board of director level, at the stockholder level, they take a look at past actions and say, yes, we formally as the board of directors or stockholders approve all of these actions that have taken place. And, and uh, Paul, if I, if I could jump in on a few other issues on the corporate housekeeping um, that Ryan went over. Um, the a couple of things you know from from a regulatory perspective is you know to make sure your 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 um your agreements with the carriers right are, are in place are up to date um you want to see what consent requirements there are going to be in those agreements if, when you're going to be selling to a buyer most times buyers will have the same appointments as the seller but if not, um, you know that's that's also consideration um, in in the transaction that the, the the buyer is able to to obtain that appointment with that particular key carrier. Um, one other point that's is also important in your agreements is um, internal agreements is is there any first right of refusal of um, of a third party to any ownership interest in your book of business. I mean, this could be a network or an aggregator or a cluster who, you know, may, may have some ownership, or it could be um, a, a key employee that may have some vested interest in the revenue stream of their book of business that you're going to need to address. Uh, so those are a couple other important points to, to consider when you're reviewing for potential sale. And and finally, uh, and I, this goes on to what, what Chris said. You really need to run your business like you're ready to sell it. So you know at, at all times. So that's you want to get up to get all your documents and everything up to speed, like if you're going to be selling it as soon as possible. Yeah, and and I guess when when we when you do go to sell, you're going to need quite a few advisors. But all along the way, these are probably folks you should be working with. I know you mentioned, um, you know carrier agreements, contracts, profit sharing. I've 
worked with Chris for years on on those types of uh, issues, and it takes a while to get those things uh-huh. in order. I mean, you don't just pull that together at the last minute. So obviously, Chris is a uh, is a consultant doing uh, M and A, and then just day to day running the business, carrier contracts, profit sharing agreements, those types of things. You're involved. Um, what have you seen from your end in in agencies that are able to get things in order? It takes some time. Um, one of the biggest mistakes I see all the time is people thinking, I've got a producer contract. I'll just find it. Mm-hmm. Half the time, they can't even find it. Um, then, especially if it's old, um, it may be completely out of date with some of the changes that are being Talked about in Washington, D.C. now, most producer contracts are probably going to have to be rewritten completely if those rules go through. Um, another factor is, is that a lot of agency owners have never never read the agreements they signed. So they don't understand what's actually in them. So really good example I've seen many times per um, <clears throat> both Brian and Mark's points is the producer contract actually says that the producer owns the business and the owner goes to sell their agency and they go, well, I'm going to get three times. And then they go, and then someone points out to him, yeah, but you owe your producers like all of their books of business. So you're not actually going to get three times. No, that's not what the contract says. No, that's, Actually, what the contract says, um, worst one I've ever seen was where the agency owner owed the producer uh, producers one and a half times the agency each. So the, the liability to the producers actually exceeded the entire value of the agency by about 50 percent. Huh. And his first words out of his mouth were, get me the attorney so I can sue him. And uh, <laughs> that wrote <laughs> and someone out to him and said, "Well, you can't do that because you read the agreement and signed it six years ago, and um, you should have caught that, shouldn't you?" Um, and he was ready to sell. He was ready to buy his boat, move to Florida, and enjoy retirement. And um, you know, when something like that happens, you're talking a year to two years to fix it. You're not going to sell the agency for a year to two years at the dead minimum in that case. So get your stuff together. Make sure your numbers match. The carrier stuff that Ryan and Mark brought up was great. I just am working on one now where the documents, the carrier documents show that let's say they have a million dollars of commissions. Somewhere or another, the agency's Financials are showing they have an extra $500,000. I have no clue where it's coming from because it's those commissions aren't showing up on any carrier statements. These are the sorts of things that have to be reconciled up front. And if they don't reconcile first time, it's work. So, uh, Mark and Ryan, what other advisors do you recommend? Obviously, you've got uh, an agency has a ton of work to do with with Chris or or, or that you know, those consultants, what what other professionals are people looking towards? Well, uh, if I could jump in, I mean, the the, the, the first call, if, if not the, to Chris, is then to your C, to the CPA. Um, you, you need to get tax counsel immediately um, yeah. when you're considering selling. I mean, it, the the 
tax consequences in, in the U.S. we're all very familiar with. There's potential for um, capital gains to be going up, <laughs> uh, you know, under under our current uh, current president. So, you know, it, it's it's a very important consideration as to um, how the seller is 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 structured. Are they C corp? Are they S corp? Are they an LLC? Is it a stock sale? Is it an asset sale? Um, you know, uh, do they have their financials in order um, and, and and such on purchase price? So um, that's that's real important. Um, second would be if if they don't really understand the market, um, you, know, you bring in a Chris or you bring in an investment banker uh, type who who understands uh, the, the the buyers out there, the potential purchasers um, is able to come in and and um uh, uh package the agency deal with all the issues uh clean it up and and present it to to um buyers that the investment um banker or broker has relationships with um and they can also assist with the valuation of it, it with the cpa um assist with the letter of intent in negotiating it um but that also comes with a fee so you know they need to consider a, a typically there's a percentage charged um by the investment banker of the total purchase price and i've seen that in the neighborhood of five percent give or take i've seen higher and i've seen lower but um that that's super important um uh, having legal counsel who understand merger and acquisitions uh also key uh they're 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 um uh, a lot of times the the buyers purchase agreement it favors the buyer so um the seller needs representation to to even to even out the uh, playing field and make sure they're they're protected and and um when they sell they're they're not going to be uh chased by the buyer for for many years and there's caps on liability etc um so uh ryan i'm not sure if you have anything to add to that but yeah, no, um, in terms of accountants, um, you know, you want to make sure you've got accountants that are well versed in both uh, sort of um, M&A and uh, the tax world as well. I've seen um, a lot of agencies that deal with um, accountants that are sort of smaller and just handling more um, year to year operational issues, uh, but not really analyzing what happens upon a sale, uh, the differences between a stock and asset sale and the different tax consequences that may occur. And uh, would they consider uh, a merger, for instance, and uh, what's the issues between an LLC and a C-Corp and um also interfacing relative to the buyer. And if they treat it as an asset sale, uh, what would be the specific tax consequences that are sometimes elective? Uh, and a good accountant uh, would be able to help to discern between the two and can also model the two as well, can look within the specific business and say, all right, this is conceptually the sort of issue you're facing, but now I'm going to also drill down within your specific financial and tax situation and say, okay, this is going to turn into a $10,000 issue. Now it's not a big deal. On second thought, this is going to turn into a $600,000 issue. Now we need to start analyzing this or maybe even more like a $2 million, $3 million issue Boy, this is a showstopper. We got to. We we need to solve this, and they could help discern that. You you need somebody who's equipped along those lines. Yeah. Um, 
Well, y'all mentioned um, letter of intent, and that's a lot more than dear deep pocket VC that's going to make my life miserable, but give me some money. Um, I'm willing to sell. What what does go into a letter of intent? What what do those look? Well, the letter of intent uh, is the first start of a merger and acquisition transaction. It's basically the buyer and the seller having a handshake over the material provisions of what the overall transaction is going to look like. Uh, First and foremost, the letter of intent talks about the purchase price. Um, you know exactly how much is the business going to be bought for. Um, then it's also talking about the fact that uh, the business is going to be purchased, but in what form will it be? A stock sale, which basically means all the equity is going to be sold over, or is it going to be an asset sale, which means all the assets within the business are going to be transferred over? It, the effect is the same, but there's tax consequences that distinguish between the two. Uh, generally speaking, most transactions are done on an asset sale basis, uh, but there may be exceptions to that where there's uh, stock sales as well. And then the letter of intent talks about other material provisions. For instance, there may be a non-compete involved and uh, the scope of the non-compete, the amount of uh, period and the amount of terms, um, length of time that the uh, non-compete is going to go, uh, it's going to last. And also, um, and also in terms of uh, the amount of exclusivity that they're going to want to negotiate and then uh, the due diligence period. And relating back to uh, the purchase price for a second, um, the purchase price is typically going to be a multiple of um, earnings or what in the industry they'll often refer to as EBITDA, which stands for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Uh, and it'll typically be a multiple between the two. Usually, uh, we see it being anywhere between a multiple of six times to 10 times a multiple. And um, the uh, letter of intent will also describe um, how the purchase price will be paid. Um, it may be, for instance, 100% cash. Um, which case that's pretty simple. Uh, it may also be a combination of cash and buyer stock. Uh, so if you believe, for instance, uh, the buyer after they take over the business and the buyer itself will keep growing uh, to the point where it's worth um, a- a- taking their equity, then the- it'll be a combination of the two. And then lastly, there's a concept of something called earnout, which means that um a part of the most of the purchase price will be in cash, but then some of it will be withheld and contingent on the performance of the company after the buyer has taken over for usually a one to three year stretch. And based on that performance, uh, additional payout will be made, and that's called earnout. Once you've signed, I guess my last question is once you've signed that letter of intent, that doesn't mean that you, you have to sell, right? You can back out at that point or the, the buyer can back out, correct? That's correct. The letter of intent isn't binding. It's a non-binding document between the parties. It's more of a handshake arrangement to say, okay, this is the broad strokes, the material terms of what we're talking about. The actual binding contract uh, comes in later. That's a definitive document. It's typically anywhere from 25 to 75 pages. It's much longer. It goes into a lot of representations and warranties, um, certain covenants that are going to be required. It's a much more extensive document. But at the, le- the letter of intent is 
more so to establish what the broad strokes of the material terms are. And it's to sort of establish between the parties, hey, this is what we sort of agreed upon. So if you do want to back out, certainly you can. Um, but if you also feel like um, you want to change the terms, then it's going to be a little bit tougher to do that after a letter of intent's been signed because they're going to basically take the position, hey, you kind of agreed upon this. Now we're sort of horse trading um, if you try to modify too much what the letter of intent already establishes. There there are, though, um, uh, and just to touch on, there is certain aspects of, of a letter of intent that, that are binding, which is the exclusivity period where the seller agrees for, let's say, 90 days that they won't shop and go try to find another buyer. So they will be locked up for a short period of time, um, potentially. That's the time period that the buyer does their due diligence, um, you know, unless unless the buyer agrees to release them. Um, but but uh, in their confidentiality provision is going to be binding on the parties and um, and, and a few other uh, minor, maybe perhaps jurisdiction in the event of, of, of a, um, litigation or arbitration. But, but otherwise, the material terms of the transaction itself are non-binding. I'd like to add one part to Mark's um, mm -hmm. comment about the confidentiality portion being binding. Mm -hmm. For everybody that is thinking about selling and signing a letter of intent. There are multiple versions of this. You could have a letter of intent that has been written by the business broker or by the buyer. And some of the confidentiality portions written by some of the business brokers um, have a clause that stipulates that they can continue to shop your data to other people even after the fact, even if the deal doesn't go through. I would suggest to anybody thinking of selling that that's probably not something you want to agree to. And it is binding. So pay really close attention to those kinds of clauses. Mm -hmm. um, they're not all the same. Yeah, I can't emphasize enough that while most people think Getting a lawyer involved is after after I've signed the letter of intent because I need them to cross the T's, dot the I's. You absolutely need a lawyer before the letter of intent. You need to understand exactly what you're getting involved with, and you need to have somebody... Um, and I highly also advise an investment banker as well, um, but certainly somebody who's seasoned in the M&A space to evaluate the letter of intent as well. Perfect. Well, Mark and Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. And because they're going to need, our listeners are going to need the, your services at some point in time, how can they they get a hold of y'all uh, before they sign the letter of intent? Uh, sure. Um, I mean, they... they um, can reach us by by email or or uh, you know give give us a call um, and you know we you know we can provide that information now or and and now as far as states too do you have a uh, particular footprint you like to operate in or is it kind of nationwide we're na it's nationwide on transactions um, okay. yeah absolutely perfect. And your website is? Uh, website is um, uh, mrllp.com. 
That's M-R-L-L-P.com. Well, thank you so much, y'all, for joining us. And thank you to everyone for taking the time to listen. And we look forward to talking to you next time. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys.